ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. The future is fast approaching, and artificial intelligence is positioned to fundamentally change not only society, but financial advisory. Join us on August 30th for Vetify's AI Symposium, where experts and thought leaders dig into AI and explore its potential impact. Go to etftrends.com slash webcasts slash artificial dash intelligence dash symposium dot com to learn more and register for the event. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. We're going to look at uh, several pretty big stories in ETFs recently, including FM Investments filing with the SEC last week to offer a mutual fund share class of their ETFs. You heard me right. This is an ETF issuer who wants to offer a mutual fund share class, not the uh, other way around. So Todd and I will discuss that. We're also going to talk uh, ETF flows, including physical gold ETF flows. Uh, we have some thoughts on this Jim Cramer ETF that's now closing. Of course, Bitcoin ETFs. We have a, a great slate of topics. So I'll start there with Todd this week. I'll then be joined by Tom Generazio, senior trader on the institutional block desk at Charles Schwab. And I would say for anyone who trades ETFs, like at all, whether you're an individual investor or financial advisor, whether you're making large trades or small trades, even if you're just a, a buy and hold investor who doesn't even trade that often, you still have to buy and sell ETFs at some point. And so Tom is going to discuss important tips and best practices when doing so. He's seen it all while sitting on the institutional trading desk at TD Ameritrade and now Schwab. He's been in the business for some 30 years. So he's going to share what he's learned to help ensure you're trading ETFs as efficiently as possible. And then to close this week, one of my favorite people in the ETF space, I'll be joined by Phil Bach, CEO of Armada ETFs, who back in June launched the private real estate strategy via liquid REITs ETF, ticker symbol PRVT, private. I call this a, a potential breach killer. If you're familiar with the Blackstone Real Estate Income Trust, which is a non-traded REIT fund. And so Phil is going to get into all the details as to why that may be the case. Like basically how they're hoping to disrupt the non-traded REIT market. 
And if you know Phil, then you know he always comes guns a-blazing. I, I think I might just uh, bait him by saying something like mark to market, and then I'll just let him go. I won't need to ask any more questions. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, look forward to that conversation with someone who I consider to be a true ETF entrepreneur. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with Vetify's Todd Rosenbluth. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. $800 billion, I think we have to say that again, $800 billion and counting for an industry that is, is still growing in size is impressive. Todd, great having you back on the podcast. Thanks, Nate. Great to be with you. All right, so look, I was hoping we would get a uh, ruling in Grayscale's lawsuit against the SEC last Friday. Of course, Grayscale is trying to convert GBTC into a spot Bitcoin ETF. That ruling didn't happen. Now, I, I, I saw your tweet just a few minutes ago. It's entirely possible we get a ruling today. Uh, actually, right as we're recording here, right? Uh, but, but then again, this thing is dragged out forever now, so who knows? It's been uh, about, what, six months since oral arguments uh, were heard in that case. It just seems like it should not take that long. But look, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I, I'll just ask you, has anything at all changed in your thinking around spot Bitcoin ETF approval, given that it does look like the SEC is uh, now going to green light these Ethereum futures ETFs? And also, I don't know if you saw this filing from uh, Hashdex on Friday, where it looks like they're trying to box the SEC in, at least in my opinion. It's a Bitcoin ETF that would hold both futures and spot, but the spot would actually come from what's called exchange for physical transactions on the CME. I, I don't know that we want to get into that today, but just big picture, has anything at all changed with your view here, Todd? So I guess I'll, I'll be upfront. I still do not believe that we will have a spot Bitcoin ETF approved by the SEC in 2023. That I'm on record on that. I put my money where my mouth is. Eric Valchunas and I have a bet. He's going to take me out to steak dinner in January once we don't have a spot Bitcoin ETF. But we certainly are seeing things that are shifting since probably the last time you and I talked about it. We have, I think, 18 or more than 18 futures-based ETFs tied to Ethereum that have, that are, have been filed, that's more than two baseball teams or all that you need for two baseball teams. That's absurd. We have, what, three or four futures-based uh, Bitcoin ETFs, and only one of them has been successful uh, in gathering assets. That's BITO, the ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF. The other products have struggled to gain traction. I get why people want to line up at the starting line, but I don't think we need 18 runners in this race. I also just don't think even if we get a favorable ruling for grayscale, which is that the SEC ruled in error um, in the coming days, weeks, that that actually means we have a spot Bitcoin ETF happening. I think the SEC will likely review grayscale and what it's trying to do the same way that it's reviewing the uh, more than a dozen or so, I think. Spot Bitcoin, physical spot Bitcoin ETF filings and ultimately approve one or many of them at some point, probably in 2024. 
but I don't think much is changing in the next few weeks, although it's certainly a hot topic for, for this podcast on, on social media, other outlets, some of our friends in the industry spend much of their time focusing on reading the tea leaves here. Yeah, it's just been uh, such a fun story to cover. I'll just comment on a, a couple of things that you mentioned there. First of all, I, I'm on record on this podcast of saying that I believe uh, these will be approved in January 2024, just if you look at the time timeline. So I think we're generally in agreement there. Uh, I, I will be surprised if these are approved prior to that. Not saying it can't happen. I do think there's a lot riding on this uh, grayscale case because it depends on what the language looks like from the judges. And, and maybe they're more forceful, and that really pushes the uh, the SEC. We'll, we'll see. Um, regarding your comment on the Ethereum futures ETF filings, whatever, they're 18 or, or, or so out there, I agree with you. Uh, I, I've said I expect the Ethereum futures ETF market to be smaller than the Bitcoin futures ETF market, which is about 1.3, 1.4 billion last I checked, which is not nothing, but it's not some enormous market and certainly not a big enough market for 18 players uh, or, or what have you. The other thing here, too, and this is a little bit longer term, but let's just say I'm right in that a spot Bitcoin ETF will be approved in January 2024 or somewhere around then. If Grayscale is successful in their case, and the SEC approves spot Bitcoin ETFs, and they approve Ethereum futures ETFs, which the latter looks like is going to happen, then I would expect to see spot Ethereum ETFs, if you just play out the logic there, since you have uh, CME-traded Ethereum futures uh, out there. So we don't have to get into all that, but my point is, is that if that happens, and I realize there's a lot of ifs there, but if that happens, then in my opinion, it would render the Ethereum futures ETFs obsolete, because everybody would just invest in spot uh, ETFs and, and really same on the Bitcoin side. But before we move on here, let me let me ask you this, Dot. Are you surprised that this grayscale case is taking this long? Again, from my perspective, this looks like a pretty straightforward case. And I'm certainly biased here. I think that's that's clear, but I just don't see what there is to mull over here. Now, I, I'm also no attorney, right? So I don't know everything that goes into an uh, administrative procedure act violation, but are you surprised it's taking this long? So I'm not because federal court cases and court cases in general take a long period of time. And when Grayscale, you know, when when the case was going on, I, I found uh, a couple of articles that were saying Grayscale had expected a ruling in the fall. Still summer, man. People yeah. are still on vacation. I just got back from it. You know, we're ending summer and we'll head into the fall and uh, baseball playoffs and football season kicking off. And don't worry, you'll get a ruling in 2023. You just have to have a little bit more patience and see the broader ETF universe around you, my friend. <laughs> hey, we could get that ruling before the end of this podcast. I'm just saying. Well, that's true. And then, and then we're going to have to retake this whole thing. <laughs> All right. Look, since we didn't get a, a, a grayscale ruling last week, I would say the biggest news in ETFs was uh, FM Investments filing to offer a mutual fund share class of their ETFs. And if you don't mind, let me just explain this a little bit. So last August, FM Investments launched the first single bond ETFs. These were single treasury bond ETFs. And these have been very successful. They launched in early August of last year, and already they have nearly $2.5 billion in assets. I would say a smash hit, given that this was a brand-new ETF entrant. Now, if we fast forward to earlier this year, we saw uh, PGIA and then Dimensional file to offer an ETF share class of their existing mutual funds. 
So, of course, Vanguard had a patent on that. That patent expired in May. PGIA and Dimensional have now filed to use this structure for active ETFs, by the way. Vanguard's only been using this uh, for passive. But now FM Investments is seeking to do the opposite here. They, they already have ETFs, but they want to offer a mutual fund share class of their single treasury bond ETF. So I, I'm curious, what was your reaction to that? Uh, so, first of all, a great, great stage setting. I, I, when I saw this, I was on vacation. So I thought, oh, God, this is what's happening. This is the topic uh, du jour, and I'm not going to be a part of it. I was doing the Baseball and Basketball Hall of Fames with my family. But I thought, wow, what an innovative next step uh, for FM investments. That, as you touched on, was an innovator in the ETF space, and you talked about how much money they have. One of their ETFs, uh, the ticker, love these stickers, but T-Bill, T-B-I-L, which is the three-month uh, T-Bill ETF, a U.S. Treasury three-month T-Bill ETF, $1.6 billion. That, that's a lot of money for a fund that I think just passed its one-year anniversary. We had FM Investments out of Vetify Fixed Income Symposium uh, in July. I'm a bit surprised that, or not a bit, I am surprised that there are firms that are looking to take their ETF success and port it into the mutual fund space, but because the ETF growth is where the action has been. But I can certainly see the appeal. You know, I think you and I have long wondered why ETFs are not a part of 401k plans more broadly, but they're not. That's just a fact. And it's just easier to get exposure to T-bills or cash, essentially, using a mutual fund instead of an ETF. And so it makes sense to me that, that, that FM might want to tap into a different marketplace. And I would note that even though you and I know of them more as this new ETF entrant, FM investments through the broader fund family that they're a part of offer fixed income mutual funds under, they offer fixed income funds under the brand Oakhurst. So they are not a new player to the mutual fund space. They're just looking to take existing expertise and assets and make them available to the mutual fund marketplace. No, I think those are all good points. I'll, I'll dovetail on one of your points in that. And, and I said this after a Dimensionals application. To me, it doesn't matter whether this is an issuer who has mutual funds and they now want to offer ETFs or vice versa, like with what uh, FM is trying. I think this is all about the 401k market, re- retirement plans, because that's a very lucrative area, but one dominated by mutual funds. I, I would say it's really the last bastion for, for mutual funds. Otherwise, they might just go away altogether. And so if a fund company uh, can tap both the 401k market and go after what is clearly the higher growth ETF market, that's the best of both worlds. Now, to what you were saying, longer term, I do expect to see uh, ETFs make further inroads into 401ks. I, I do think that will happen. But the fact is mutual funds work well in 401ks, and they're not going anywhere for a while. And so if I'm FM, I'm thinking, well, how do I access that market? Because I'm you know, an ETF issuer. Now, it's a good point regarding the uh, the mutual funds they offer, but let's switch out FM with somebody who's just a pure uh, ETF issuer. They don't have a mutual fund business. And if they don't have mutual funds, um, you know, you can solve for that with doing something like what FM is doing. And, and really, Dimensional and PGI, it's the uh, same thing. They're just trying to keep the retirement plan business uh, or pursue that retirement plan business while also going after the higher growth ETF market. It's six of one, half dozen of another, in my opinion. I, I think a second point 
that that all add to everything that you said is look you you talk about this all the time where is the innovation and in asset management occurring it's in etfs right you you, you don't see single treasury bond mutual funds launching. It's single treasury bond ETFs. And so if you think about this, uh, you know, what FM would really be doing is they can get this proposed mutual fund, if they can get this proposed mutual fund share class approved, is they'd be creating a path to bring that ETF innovation to 401ks. And if you think about all of the ETF issuers that have launched over the past decade, but again, just as ETF issuers, they don't have mutual funds, and this would give them the ability I think that that could be a huge marketing tailwind for ETFs because what better way to market or introduce people to ETF innovation than through their 401k plans? We all have them. You, you know, everybody sees the funds in there. And so if they see some of these unique strategies in their 401ks, maybe they'll say, well, how, how do I get that in my individual taxable account or retirement accounts? And they might look to ETFs. So I, I don't know if that makes sense. I just think that that's a part of it, too, sort of that, that marketing push. I think it makes sense, but it's going to make sense for certain providers and not all providers. You know, FM has an institutional presence within the mutual fund marketplace and what their product offering of tapping into U.S. treasuries, uh, single treasuries, uh, makes sense for 401ks and certainly makes sense for institutional investors. I'll just pick a random uh, ETF provider, Roundhill, which is much more retail-oriented um, and has distribution focused from the ETF standpoint, I, I will be pleasantly surprised if they look to offer a mutual fund version of some of their ETF strategies to tap into 401ks. But if FM sets the stage and, and gets approval, then that opens the door for others. Um, and I just think investors want you know benefit from having choice, whether it's ETFs or mutual funds or separately managed accounts of the same strategies. And it's why we're seeing firms like Capital Group and, and BlackRock and, and Dimensional Funds and others bring strategies into the ETF marketplace from the mutual fund world. Regarding approval, and I don't want to get into the regulatory weeds here, but do you think the SEC is ultimately going to get comfortable with this? And is there really a distinction between what FM is trying to do and, and say, Dimensional? So my knowledge of patent and trademark law, I think, ended with the movie The Social Network. So I don't know. I don't have anywhere the level of expertise to be able to say what makes what FM is trying to do different than what what Vanguard has been doing and what others are looking to do moving into the ETF marketplace. This just makes sense, whether or not making sense is enough for the SEC, but it just makes sense. Uh, if it was good enough for Vanguard to offer a – ETF and mutual fund share class of existing strategies, I don't see why it's not good enough for others to be able to do so. Uh, I know there's certainly investor protections they need to be aware of, and they very much take that serious. I'm just not sure that there's enough reason for concern with the full disclosure that I don't have the expertise to, to give an opinion beyond an opinion. Yeah, I just think as it pertains to the SEC, FM is going to need to overcome the same concerns that the SEC previously voiced regarding uh, share class subsidization, right, where the SEC is worried that, say, actions of mutual fund shareholders will cause negative tax consequences or higher transaction costs for ETF share class holders. I think that's really what this all comes down to, as far as I can tell. Now, to your other point, I did find it interesting that FM – 
applied for a provisional patent on this structure because materially, I, I don't understand how this would be any different than Vanguard structure, which, of course, their patent is now expired. They're essentially doing the same thing. But, again, I'm no IP attorney. I just don't see anything novel here. I think it's, it's great. I just don't see anything novel here that could be patented uh, unless I'm uh, missing something. But all of this will be fascinating to watch. And, again, I think it was a surprise to uh, people to see an issuer pursuing the mutual fund share class versus the uh, other way around. Um, okay, let's move on. Another bit of ETF news last week that I did want to ask you about is this pending closure of the Long Kramer Tracker ETF, ticker LGEM. And you probably remember we discussed this ETF when it launched back in March, along with the Short Kramer Tracker ETF, ticker SGEM. And if I recall correctly, I don't think you were overly optimistic on either of these. I think you were just questioning what's the, the ultimate investor use case here. And now we do have LGEM closing. So I, I just wanted to give you the opportunity. Any quick reaction on this? Are you surprised Tuttle Capital only gave this, what, five or six months? Uh, so I'm not surprised that it's closing this quickly, but I'm, I, or, or, I, it's a little quick, I guess let me phrase it again. It's a little bit quick for ETFs to close. We are seeing funds come to marketplace and then in, within 12 months, fail to gather assets that it doesn't make sense to keep them afloat. We're seeing that with certainly actively managed ETFs. I just, at the time, I didn't think there was an investment case. I still don't think there's an investment case for the short version of this. Whether you love Jim Cramer or you think Jim Cramer makes bad stock calls, you shouldn't be solely following the investment recommendations up or down from what it is he's doing. Any more than you should be investing in something like NANCE, N-A-N-C, which is, if you may recall, the unusual whales, subversive democratic trading ETF, which is another way of saying, we think Congress knows more information than the general public. We want to ride, ride their coattails. That's $10 million in that ETF. And I actually was surprised it was as big as that. These are just not in long-term investment strategies uh, worth putting time and focus on. But they get attention because it makes more, it's more fun to write about that than the Vanguard 500 ETF, VU, that you may know uh, has added $26 billion of new money this year. It passed the $300 billion mark, and it actually gathered $305 million on Friday. I guarantee you nobody wrote a headline on Monday that it gathered $300 million on Friday. That's just like the sun coming up. That's where the action is, not uh, SGIM and LGIM and, and some of these uh, more novel niche-oriented ETFs that are failing to gather assets. Yeah, I like you painting the uh, sharp contrast there with uh, flows into VU. So just to be clear, do you think the short Kramer ETF has a chance to stay alive or no? I, I think I think Tuttle, uh, who uh, yeah, a good person, I respect what it is that he's trying to do. I think he'll keep that one afloat longer to try to gather assets and, and think there's a case for it and hope the track record uh, is strong enough to gather assets. But I, I, I think that this is not an, an invest. I don't think this is where the investment assets should be going. I think they should be going into strategies that make more sense for advisors to, to use uh, in client portfolios. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Matt Tuttle. I, I agree. I like what he's tried to do in the ETF space. I do think he's had some innovative ideas. I will say I found uh, his comments on the uh, or in the press release in closing this to be a little bit confusing. I, actually, let me read these. He said, 
We started LGEM in order to facilitate a conversation with Jim Cramer around his stock picks as the other side to the short Cramer ETF. Unfortunately, Mr. Cramer and CNBC have been unwilling to engage in dialogue and instead have chosen to ignore the funds. Therefore, there is no reason to keep the long side going. Going forward, we will just focus on the short side. And as I read that, you know, maybe that was just to offer up a, a good excuse for the closure. But, Todd, in a million years, Jim Cramer and CNBC were never going to help sell these ETFs, right? I, I guess the only scenario would have been if, say, L. Jim just knocked the cover off the ball in terms of performance. Maybe then Jim Cramer would have uh, been touting this. But otherwise, I just don't see how Cramer or CNBC were ever going to, you know, help Tuttle sell these, so to speak. I don't know if you have any quick comments on that. I would just say the same way. Then, if that's the case, then the the I think Tuttle was part of the Sark and Tark ETFs that I think are part of Axis Investments. Apologies if I'm I'm doing this on the fly here. I don't believe Kathy Wood is engaged uh, with uh, with the, the asset manager behind those ETFs either. Right. Um, and those products are still around. So I'll, I'll I guess I'll let the facts go where they are. All right, let's get to a couple more topics here um, quickly. I want this first one to be very quick. You'll see why. No! <laughs> I'm in uh, an upstanding better, and uh, I don't run from my bad wagers, and so I thought I would be a gentleman and mention that you and I have a live bet on physical gold ETFs. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe the bet is that if physical gold ETFs take in over $5 billion this year, I win. If not, I'm buying you a steak dinner. Do I have that correct? That is correct, yes. Okay, so I, I looked this morning. Woo, things are not looking good for me right now. I, I, I think you have this one in the bag. So I show physical gold ETFs have something like $2.3 billion in outflows. So I'm, I'm like over $7 billion in the hole here, which is just brutal. So I'll just ask you, are you ready to take an early victory lap here? So I guess let's just use some facts here, and I well, I appreciate you bringing it up. And on that same podcast, we both made some predictions that are not looking as good, uh, and we're on the same camp on it. If time permitting, maybe we'll come back to it. But there's some a couple of heavyweights within the gold ETF, physical gold ETF, GLD, that's the Spider Gold Shares, uh, IAUM, that's the iShares Gold ETF. They together have about $2 billion of net outflows for the year, and all of this has taken place in the last four weeks. So could that easily reverse? Definitely. Could we see money continue to move back in? Possibly. Um, we've seen some inflows, you know, GLDM, which is the younger brother, the Spider Gold mini shares, and AAUM, the Goldman Sachs physical gold ETF. They've seen some modest inflows this year. It's just not enough uh, to do the heavy lifting to get you there. So. I'm feeling relatively confident that a steak cook medium is going to be paid for uh, by you uh, to me in, in January, February timeframe. Uh, but, yeah, it's not on the grill yet. I think there's still some time. I, I think you have this one in the bag, and you're going to be eating well in January between that bed. And then uh, if we don't get a spot Bitcoin ETF, Eric Balchunas will be buying you a nice juicy steak as well. I, I should I should probably uh, save some room and, and, and cut back on what I've been doing the last few months. Hey, uh, quickly, while we're on the topic of ETF flows, is there anything else standing out to you this year just at a high level? Like if you were to point to one or two other noteworthy flow trends, is there anything you would highlight? 
So I just would quickly note, this has been the year of fixed income ETFs. We, we talked about T-bill earlier and treasury ETFs. Uh, I looked at data over the weekend, and it's, I think $118 billion has flown into fixed income ETFs. I believe that's more than equity ETFs, although it depends upon whose data you end up using. We've had TLT, uh, the iShares 20-year plus treasury ETF, lead the way with $14 billion. But Vanguard has three treasury ETFs among the top 10 uh, fixed income asset gathering products, VGSH is one of them. But I, I want to highlight something that I think has flown somewhat under the radar, uh, at least by me, until I, I dug into it more. And that's active core fixed income ETFs. So dimensional funds, which, uh, as we talked about, converted some products and entered into the ETF marketplace, has over close to $100 billion in overall AUM. Most of that is in the equity space. But the and we talked about tickers. This ticker is going to get slightly confusing. It's DFCF, and that's the Dimensional Core Fixed Income ETF. This is not a free cash flow ETF. It's added $1.3 billion this year. It now has over $3 billion. JP Morgan Core Plus Bond ETF, JCPB, has added about $850 million and doubled in size. I know you know, and the audience probably knows, J.P. Morgan offers the two largest actively managed ETFs and is just behind dimensional in, in overall active ETF assets. But their active fixed income products, including JCPB, uh, is, has been one to watch this year. So I, I just think active core fixed income is becoming more mainstream for investors. No, I agree. I actually talked about this last uh, week. Uh, last week with uh, BlackRock's Rachel Aguirre, uh, and you know they've launched some active fixed income ETFs, and have made a real concerted push into that space. So I think that's going to continue to be a, a big story. Uh, Todd, just about a minute left before I let you go. Tomorrow is the big Vetify uh, Artificial Intelligence Symposium. So are you moderating that? I am. Uh, Tom Lydon and I are co-moderating the event. Real quick, folks can register at ETFtrends.com on the events tab. We already have over 950 people registered to attend, which is more than I expected in the days heading into Labor Day on a relatively narrow topic on AI. But I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited in part because we're bringing in some active management experts from Alliance Bernstein, BNY Mellon, Goldman Sachs, and Spear Alpha, among other firms to talk to us about how they're investing in stocks that are connected to AI. I'll mention just one example, uh, Goldman Sachs Tech Leaders Equity ETF, GTEK, G-T-E-K, uh, has been adding AI-themed positions throughout the year uh, into the portfolio. So really excited. It's always great when we at Vetify can bring the financial advisor community, the asset management community together, and Tom and I get to look smarter being around even smarter people. And to be clear, so that's tomorrow, which is August 30th. We're recording this on August 29th. Starts at, I believe, 11 a.m. Eastern time? Correct. There's six 20-minute sessions from 11 a.m. Eastern to just after 1 p.m. Eastern time zone. Uh, You can register again for this August 30th event at ETFtrends.com at the events page. It's free. Perfect. 
Well, Todd, great stuff as always this week. Uh, let's see if we get this grayscale rolling here in the next 45 minutes or so. But uh, I hope you call me back, my friend, and we can, <laughs> and we can, and we can sound so much smarter when it was done the right way. Hey, thank you for joining me. Thanks. That was Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. The future is here. Introducing BNY Mellon Investment Management thematic ETFs, built to deliver differentiated risk-adjusted returns through areas of societal growth and progress, and powered by our multidimensional research experts' 20-plus years of thematic investing experience. ETFs trade like stocks are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. To learn more, visit im.bnymellon.com today for important disclosures and prospectuses. Joined by Tom Generazio, senior trader on the institutional block desk at Charles Schwab. And if you want someone who knows trading and capital markets inside and out, that is 100% Tom, who has some 30 years of trading experience, including nearly 10 years working specifically with ETF. So he actually helped build the uh, block trading desk at TD Ameritrade. And he's now on the line with me from Westlake, Texas. Tom, so great to uh, connect, and welcome to the podcast. Well, Nate, thanks for having me, and I'm coming to you from the mothership of Charles Schwab. Well, look, we are going to discuss best ETF trading practices, and I I would say this will primarily be targeted uh, more towards advisors and perhaps institutional investors, but I'll also say a lot of this is certainly applicable to any retail investor listening as well. And I know you would agree that good ETF trading hygiene is good ETF trading hygiene, no matter how big or small an investor is. But uh, to start, just tell us a little bit more about your specific role. So you show up at the office every morning, you get to your desk. What are you doing all day? Well, so... Just let's start with the with the block desk itself and how we add value, um, and that'll give you an idea of how I spend my day. So the way we add value to advisors on the platform is number one is we save them money and performance, and we do that in two ways. Nate, the first way is we trade for the advisor, so advisors are laying orders off onto the block desk in in a hope that we can execute those orders with the least amount of impact or friction, and that equals cost, right? So we're trying to save the advisor money when we go to trade. And the dynamic there is the way we look at that relationship that gets built is the advisor becomes my portfolio manager and I become his trader. So I want them to think of it as we're sitting in in their office right next to them, helping them bring those investment ideas to fruition. So number one, I spend half my day trading for advisors. The other half of the day I spend is, and the other way that we save advisors money is through education. And what I mean by that is helping the advisor understand and navigate the markets, right? And, but, but really helping them build a process, 
helping them understand how important it is to have an execution process. Um, and so, you know, we're talking about things like post-trade reporting and, and thinking about, you know, like the, some of the things we're going to talk about today about, you know, best practices in trading ETFs in general. We cover equities and ETFs, but for this conversation, we can focus on ETFs. So really, half my day is education um, and helping the advisor build that better proce- process, and the other half is actually trading for the advisor. Well, let's unpack a little bit of that. So when you talk about potentially saving advisors money when trading, why are you able to potentially get better execution than what an advisor may see on screen? Explain that. Yeah. Yes, that's a great that's a great a great question. So one of the biggest sort of misunderstandings I think or things that I try to get across to the advisors right away is when trading ETFs, advisors I want them to understand that there are two distinct marketplaces to trade that ETF, to source that liquidity. The most common one is what we call the secondary market, which is, as traders would call it, the screen market. So an advisor can punch a quote up in any given ETF and see a bid and an offer in daily volume, and they see the spread. That market is really, I'm going to generalize here, but that market is really suited for smaller size orders. And I'm not talking about notional amounts. I'm talking share amount, share quantity. So what I would say is, and this is going to come to a shock to a lot of folks out there, is that I would say that that market, for the most part, is designed for smaller size, sub 2,000 share orders. And, and what I mean, and where did I get that number, is when I look at statistics on platforms that advisors are on, whether it be TD or Schwab or whatever platform you're on, if you look at the execution quality statistics, about 96, this is a real number, about 96% of all orders that are traded in that secondary market, about 96% of those orders are going to get filled immediately better than a rival. So what does that mean, a rival? Well, if you punch a quote up in, let's say, T-Jewel, for instance, a, 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 a pretty popular uh, an ETF that we see a lot of is these innovator-defined outcome products. T-Jewel is their 100% buffer product. But let's say you punch a quote up in T-Jewel, you know, there's a there's a 96% chance that when you go to trade that T-Jewel, if, if it's sub-2,000 shares, you're, you're going to receive an execution immediately better than where it's offered on the screens at the time that order was entered. So that's the secondary market. Think of smaller-sized retail-type orders. The other marketplace where ETFs trade, where we source liquidity, is called the primary market, and that's the market where the block desk is going to play in. What we're doing there is we have the ability to leverage – our counterparty's ability to create and redeem shares of the ETF. Now, I know a lot of heads exploded, and I, we could have another whole conversation about creation and redemption, but it's basically a fancy way of saying that we're able to source large amounts of liquidity in a given name right around arrival, but I'm talking larger sizes. So to, to, back, to go back to T-Jewel as an example, you know, I checked this before coming on, T-Jewel trades about 175,000 shares a day. That's the average daily volume of T-Jewel. And I could probably buy around 400,000 shares of T-Jewel or about $10 million worth of T-Jewel or two and a half times its average daily volume in the primary market right around a penny or so from the bid offer. So I'm able to source that much liquidity by leveraging our counterparties in order to, to, to bring that idea to fruition. Tom, I think one hesitation advisors have in calling the block desk, and quite frankly, I'll put myself in this category. I've I've been there in the past, is that 
maybe their trade isn't big enough to bother. And so I'm curious, is there a rule of thumb you can offer here? And I know you would say, look, just just call you. You can discuss it and, and work things yeah. through. But I, I'm telling you, a lot of advisors won't do that. And so if you had to sort of put this into a box, what are some good parameters you might offer in terms of when it absolutely makes sense to call the block desk? So great question. What I what we tell advisors as a guide, as sort of a pre-trade checklist, if you will, is, and again, we're generalizing because every, every ETF is different, right? Their liquidity profile is different. But if I'm, if I'm working for them, which I am, this is what I would suggest. First of all, use a 2% of average daily volume number. So look at your order size, right? You're blocking up an order for, you know, a certain percentage of your clients and you've got this one block order of, of, of an, of an ETF you want to buy. If that order size is greater than 2% of the average daily volume, of what that ETF trades in a day, pause before you fire that thing off into the street like a drunken sailor, right? Take a second to think about it and say, you know what? Maybe I want to reach the block desk for this one. Be conservative. But the other way for, I would say, another number I'd throw out there is just what I said based off of statistics. I would rather be, I would rather the advisor be super conservative in the beginning. I would rather, because we're seeing a lot of advisors come out of mutual funds, for instance, and they're, they're, they're just now being introduced to, to trading an ETF, right? It's a whole new experience for them. So for those folks or, or folks that aren't accustomed to trading a lot, I would tell you, be very conservative and use that 2000 share number, right? Remember, 96% of of orders that are shot out to the street that are less than 2,000 shares are getting filled immediately better than a rival. Okay, so leverage that. That's Maybe that's your early 101 trading process that we're going to build together. 2,000 shares or less, I'm good on my own. Anything greater than 2,000 shares on an ETF, guess what? I'm going to reach out to the block desk. So I'll tell you that from my standpoint, no trade is too small for me to step in and try to add value. And what's going to happen is over time as we trade more with that RIA, of course, I'm going to, the education part will come in where I'll help show them ways that they can internally start to use their own post-trade data to determine when to use a block desk and when not. But please, I don't want any advisor out there to think that they're bothering the block desk by having us execute an order for them. We would want you to do that because we want to save you the money. To your last point, is there a good way or an easy way for advisors to see the market impact of their trades? Because I think that if they could see that, then they may be more likely, obviously, to give you a call. Yeah. And that's a real big eye opener, uh, Nate, when I go into, so like I said, I spend half my time educating advisors on this. And one of the big things I do is is show them a post-trade report, right? And and a lot of advisors get confused out there. They're hire, they'll hire a consultant and they're trying to achieve best X and they're talking about, well, what am I going to do about best X? And the consultant says, oh, well, let's go download, you know, let's go all these, to all these brokers' website and download their 606 report, which is really a report that broker-dealers are obligated to publish that show where we route our order flow as a company as a whole, right? But what's more important is if the advisor could have their own execution detail of their own orders specific to just them, and that's exactly what we do at, at Charles Schwab. We provide quarterly post-trade reports to those advisors and the education there is to say, for the first time, the advisor is now getting to see all of their trades that they traded and the execution quality specific to those trades. So we can pick out instances where they're creating friction. And it's, it's always a low-hanging fruit. We say, well, look, look at this report. You've, on these four trades, you created a little bit of friction there, which is cost. You know what? 
those order sizes were greater than a few thousand shares, maybe next time you trade that, maybe try not held or try a market of the limit or something like that, but at least alerting or showing the advisor how to measure their true trading cost. And that is where you see a lot of the education, you know, the, the, the light bulb goes off and then they realize that it's a really good practice. Tom, before we move on here, because I do have uh, some fun, at least I think fun, rapid fire questions for you on uh, ETF trading. Can you talk more about the importance of advisors blocking up their orders? And, and from my perspective, I would say that's important both for better execution, but also just from a compliance perspective, right? So all of an advisor's clients are getting the same price. But as it pertains to the execution side, do you want to explain that? Is it simply the bigger the order you're blocking up, the better the opportunity for tighter pricing? Well, no, well, it's actually this. You ready? Anytime you're buying or selling the same security for more than one client, block that order up. Because what's going to happen is it's very inefficient to access the marketplace multiple times. So let's, let's do a real-life example. You're an advisor, and you're going to put 10 clients into uh, an ETF, right? And you're going to buy 1,000 shares for each of those clients. Well, it's the way you want to do that is block those 10 orders up into one block order of 10,000 shares because now you're accessing the marketplace just once. You're going to tap into the block desk for that order, and we're going to trade in the primary market, and everyone's going to get the same price. So the federalities are happy because everyone's getting the same price. You're not picking and choosing who to trade first. If you were to split that order up into 10 individual 1,000-share orders – it's going to have the same net impact as if you sent out a 10,000-share order into the secondary market. So you're going to create a little bit of impact by sending all those rapid-fire individual orders out. And you're also going to see different prices across all of your clients. God forbid you've got a husband and wife, and they both got a different price, and Thanksgiving becomes horrible because the one <laughs> someone says, look, I, might probably, I got a better price than you did, right? That's so a great point. Always, always block up, same symbol, same side. Even if it's just two clients and it's 500 shares each, block it up into a 1,000-share order. Boom. All right. Uh, look, with our remaining time, and, and by the way, I do think you and I are going to have to do a much more in-depth uh, podcast on this. I, I think we could go for a few hours. But what I'm going to do here, this is going to be very difficult for you. I want to go rapid fire. I'm going to ask you some uh, questions around what I think are, are common ETF trading tips. You can give me your hot take. So maybe you think 30 seconds sure. to a minute and answer. We'll see if we can get through this. So. Uh, let me start with the most obvious one, which I think every ETF investor has heard at some point, and that is to always use limit orders. And my question for you is, is that true even for ETFs like SPY and QQQ? Yes. And I would say use marketable limit orders, right? So a marketable limit order, if you see a quote in a name and it's offered at $20.05, then put maybe a $20.06 limit, a penny higher than the offer is a marketable limit order, smart thing to do. Now, I will say this, when you mentioned SPY just now, SPY is pretty much the most liquid security on the planet. It's got oceanic liquidity. And remember what I told you, 2,000 shares or less, you're gonna receive an immediate execution better than a rival. So, uh, especially on SPY. So in that type of order, by the time you figured out what the offer is to put your limit on, it's already moved. So mm -hmm. in that case, leverage that those statistics, right? And, and and send that order out directly on a, on a name like SPY. All right. Another common tip that I think a lot of investors have heard is uh, not to trade ETFs right at the market open. Why, why is that? Yeah, because there's just not enough organic liquidity. Remember, an ETF is really kind of a derivative of an underlying 
basket of constituents, right? It's made up of things. Well, you want to see some organic activity in those things that the ETF is made up of so that you see some some organic liquidity in the ETF itself for better price discovery. You know what I mean? You don't want to rush out and be the first guy out of the gate. Um, yeah, you, you generally want to wait a little bit. And is that the same at the end of the day as well or no? No, at the end of the day, it's different. At the end of the day, there's a lot of liquidity involved in the end of the day. But here's the problem with the end of the day, and this gets back to the education about a process. Don't wait to the last minute to, to, to spool up your rebalance and, and, and try to execute your orders. It's really fraught with danger. You're not giving yourself enough time in case something goes wrong and you need to course correct. The market's closed, right? So for advisors, a lot of them think, well, I do my trading the last five minutes of the day. I think that's too dangerous. I mean, you can get close to the end of the day, right? Maybe 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes in the session left, and there's plenty of liquidity there. But give yourself a little bit more of a buffer in the event that something goes wrong. All right. What about international ETFs? So I know the rule of thumb here is to trade those ETFs when the underlying market is open. So say if you're buying a, a European ETF, buy it in the morning when the European markets are still open. Does it really make that much of a difference? Yeah, it does, I think, depending upon the size of your order. Again, the smaller size orders are going to be fine. Um, but on, on a larger order where you're coming to the block desk, you definitely want to trade that while the underlines are, are open in their local markets. There's going to be better price discovery because the counterparty, the, the, the other side of the trade, the, those folks that are going to risk their capital, it's going to be easier for them to narrow that spread because those constituents are currently trading. So they have they have a good view into the fair value of that ETF. So that's a, that's a, that's a good that's a good point. Okay. And then lastly, I'm just curious if there are any tips you would offer for uh, extremely volatile markets. So I think the easy one to think about here is if you go back to the COVID crash timeframe in March of 2020, right? We saw huge price swings. Uh, market circuit breakers being triggered. There were some big dislocations between ETFs price and, and net asset value, which we don't have to get into that. I, kn I know ETFs were functioning as price discovery vehicles. But I, I think the easy answer is to say, well, don't trade during those times. But, you know, some people may be absolutely set on doing so. And, and so I'm curious if there's any tips you would offer there. Or even if you just want to put aside a huge market dislocation, like maybe just trading around a Fed rate announcement or something like that. Uh, any tips you would offer? Yeah, I, I'm in the first category. I'm in the first camp. I say don't trade if you don't have to. I mean, if you don't have to trade, don't trade in volatile markets. It's just, but if you have to trade in volatile markets, stick to your knitting. Remember, start thinking about, and this is, Nate, this is where a process is key, having a, a trading process that's defined and one that's repeatable. So sub-2,000 shares, take advantage of that. Greater than that, make sure you're reaching your block desk. And let me reiterate that for everybody on this call, the advisors, when this call ends, when you listen to this podcast, the next thing you should be doing is reaching out to your platform and finding out how to access that block desk. What's the best way for you to access that block desk? Well, Tom, just fantastic insight around trading. Yes, I, I think my main takeaway from our conversation today is if you're an advisor at Charles Schwab, for sure, and you have a meaningful ETF trade, call you, right? Don't don't hesitate. Uh, but. Well, Go ahead. Can I say one more thing? Yeah, yeah, one thing I like to offer on a lot of these external appearances I do, and that is I'm kind of an open book. So my email address is thomas.generazio at schwab.com. I don't care if you're on the Schwab platform or not. It doesn't matter to me what platform you're on. If you want to go deeper in any of these topics, feel free to email me. It might take me a while to get back to you, 
but I'd be more than happy to jump on a call with anyone because my goal is to reach as many investors as I can to help navigate, help them navigate this and to help them save money because it really makes them better stewards of their clients' assets. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you for having me. That was Tom Generazio, senior trader on the Institutional Block Desk at Charles Schwab. Motley Fool Asset Management asks, do you like the low cost and convenience of passive funds, but want stock picks that have the potential to beat the market? The Motley Fool 100 Index ETF could be the solution you've been looking for. Motley Fool Asset Management took the 100 top-rated stock picks selected by the analysts at the Motley Fool LLC and put them all into one simple low-cost ETF. The ticker is TMFC. For more on this fund from Motley Fool Asset Management, visit FoolETFs.com slash ETF Prime. That's FoolETFs.com slash ETF Prime. Guest this week, certainly not least, is Phil Bach, CEO of Armada ETFs, who back in June, they launched the private real estate strategy via Liquid REITs ETF, ticker symbol PRVT, private. They also offer the residential REIT ETF, ticker house, H-A-U-S. And Phil is now joining me from the Detroit area. Phil, always a uh, pleasure. Welcome back to the podcast. How you doing, Nate? Great to talk. I am doing uh, fantastic. Hey, look, are we going to put a uh, wager on this Chiefs-Lions game next Thursday? So, yeah, the, the NFL season kicks off next Thursday with my Lions against your Chiefs. And, you know, the spread is six and a half points here, I think, seven points favored uh, for the Chiefs, of course. I don't want them. I don't need them. I don't want them. Whoa. I want to do a bet. We're, we're going to win. It doesn't even, like, you know, we're coming into Kansas City. This is a statement year for the Lions. I've never been this excited for a football team, for a football season, as I am this year of the Lions. Let's do the bet. So you are money lining the Detroit Lions in Arrowhead on opening NFL night. Am I hearing you correct? It is an insult to suggest <laughs> that we Lions need any points. We don't need a handicap. We're going to win the game. What's the bet? I think we should do a 24-hour Twitter account takeover for the winner. Oh, man. That's uh... – that's great. Look, I, I'm game if you want to do that. I don't know what I would tweet from your account, though, um, I, I, other than just mark-to-market content. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, market cap waiting. Uh. I, I, I'm open. Yes, we can do that. Uh, alternatively, I'm open to if you want to do like a steak dinner or we can do you know beers or fine whiskey if you're going down to exchange next year or whatever. We can certainly figure that out. I'm open on the Twitter take, uh, takeover if you want to do that, or we can finalize something else. Maybe we can finalize the bet on Twitter. Perfect. All right, yep, but perfect. either way, right, I'm locking you in. Yep. You're taking the lion straight up. That's right. I am. <laughs> All right. So, uh, look, back in June, Armada launched this private real estate strategy via Liquid REITs ETF. And I guess first, what was the problem that you were uh, attempting to solve here? So this, this issue with private refunds, it's really it's one of the most fascinating things that I've seen in my whole career in the markets. You know, you have a whole category of private refunds 
So there's like a Blackstone, a, a B-Read, a Starwood, which is called S-Read, and there's a number of others. There's a KKR, and, 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 and these funds have done phenomenally well, phenomenally well. I mean, at one point, Blackstone was bringing in $3 billion a month into this fund, and the largest buyers of commercial real estate have been these private REIT funds. And, you know, as these things go, right, the cycle, cycle kind of turned. It turned fairly quick in this market, and the largest buyers became the largest sellers as redemptions heated up. And, you know, we, we've got issues now. We've got lots of issues in these funds of liquidity. There's not enough liquidity. They're gated. The vast majority of these funds are gated. B-Read, of course, is, is famously gated. But even with the gates that they have, they still have to make certain liquidity thresholds per the prospectus. And in the case of B-Read, it's 5% a quarter. They own $110 billion of real estate. That's a lot of real estate that they have to sell, Okay. And, and you have a lot of other issues that are happening here. The, the NAV, the value of the fund, is set not by mark-to-market like it is on, you know, with, a, with a publicly traded REIT where you know, people are voting with their dollars. I'm willing to buy it here. I'm willing to sell it there. And that's true price discovery. In these funds, the NAV is set by an appraisal-based NAV system, which has a human element. You might say a human bias towards you know, the previous anchoring of where the, the funds were. And a gap in valuation between the publics and the privates has widened to a laughable degree. You know, we're talking about a 30% gap in valuation difference. We ran our own models to normalize for all external factors, the publics versus privates. We came by, by measuring by cap rate and by SFO a 40% valuation gap between the publics and the privates. So, you know, look, I mean, these funds, these, these companies are master allocators. They are phenomenal allocators of capital. They are in, in our view, you know, the right subsectors, the right geographies, the right property class types. They, they buy tremendous properties. So, you know, what we want to do is we want to offer that same strategy to investors, those same allocations, those same geographies, the same fundamental allocation, but without paying up at a 40% premium, right? And with better liquidity, you know, we don't have any ability to gate the fund. It's in an ETF. There's no performance fee. There's no embedded selling fee. So we think we could solve a lot of the issues structurally by using the ETF and still offer the same thing, not only the same thing, but possibly because you're buying at a discount, something superior. Phil, you, you mentioned that uh, valuation gap. And I know around the time that you launched this, you, you wrote an excellent blog where you said that essentially the strategy behind PRVT, which we'll get into that in just a moment, you said it had the worst back test you had ever seen. And so what this told you was what you were just hitting on and that there was a significant divergence between public and private REIT valuations. Can you just explain that a, a little bit further? I just want to make sure everybody understands that. Sure. So, you know, we went at this a few different ways. And, and, and at first, you know, we weren't trying to replicate necessarily what they were doing. We were trying to understand what they were doing. You know, why have these funds been so successful, not only from an asset gathering standpoint, but also from a performance standpoint? And you start to get into issues that you see with every, you know, private equity or, or venture capital type fund where there are smoothing effects. The smoothing effect is when you, you know, report uh, valuations on a, you know, less frequent, you know, period than you would with a daily market fund. So the returns look smoother, they look less volatile than they would otherwise. But of course, that's a bit of a mirage. You know, the value is still fluctuating. It's just, you know, the points at which you're looking at it are a lot um, are a lot less frequent, so you have to manage for that. And there, there are tools and, and formulas that you can do to do so. But also, um, the, the, you know, when, when running the back test, what we first tried to do was a statistical replication, which is the most common method now used for, let's say, hedge fund replication or replicating different strategies. 
The problem is there was so little volatility in the fund that when you run a pure, unconstrained uh, statistical replication model, which is you know the, the modern tools that you would use to replicate um, a certain investment strategy, what you get is so ridiculous. You get a basket basically of levered treasuries that have no volatility. And if you look at the historical performance of some of these assets, it's just like a linear line up and to the right with no volatility. So you can't replicate it. So we said, okay, if we can't replicate it because we can't trust the valuations, then well, how do we, you know, how do we achieve what we're trying to achieve, which is to offer investors the same strategy in a better way? And we said, well, we can offer the same fundamental allocations that they're doing. When we talk about the geographies and the property types and you know all these different things, let's, let's break down as many variables. We know what they own. We know what's available with the public REIT market. Let's see if we can match it. And we did. And then we ran a simple back test on those assets versus the private REITs over, you know, the last, the, most of these private REITs that we're looking at have only been around for five or six years. So we, we, you know, looked at that time period and we had massive underperformance of the back test, massive underperformance. We said, oh, well, I guess that doesn't work. Now we sat around and said, wait a minute, why doesn't that work, right? Is that sustainable? Is it sustainable for the, for the private REITs to outperform the public REITs on an indefinite time horizon by, you know, 15 percentage points annualized every single year? I mean, let's compound, let's compound that out for, for a decade and see how crazy the valuations look. It's not possible. This thing will revert. And we started looking historically, you know, and, and there's, there's like an oscillating, like over time, the privates versus the publics, there's a divergence and a convergence and a divergence and a convergence. And we're now at the largest divergence that we've ever had. We think there's going to be a convergence coming. And that means one of, one of two things. Either it's going to be really good for public REITs or it's going to be really bad for private REITs or more likely something in between. So if we can offer a fund that could put investors on the right side of gravity, on the right side of that trade, then you know, that we're doing something good for investors. Okay, so with the ETF itself, how are you attempting to mimic those characteristics of a non-traded REIT? And is it fair to call this a uh, a non-traded REIT tracker? You know, where you're replicating what they're doing, or do you, do you like a better description there? So it's a little tricky to call it a tracker, and the fund name is so ridiculous, and the fund name is so long because. The SEC said that we can't name the fund. We can't put private REIT in the name if there are no private REITs in the fund, hmm. which is, I think, a very fair point, and it makes sense. So we said, okay, well, we're doing a private REIT strategy, but via liquid public REITs. And if we put it all into the name, it really tells people exactly what we're doing. So, you know, when I wear my marketing hat, I hate it, but, you know, I, I want people to understand what they're getting. And, you know, we're not promising that we're going to track the performance of the private REITs. We can't say that because I can't tell you what the performance of the private read is going to be, right? If the performance of the private read is dictated by the NAV, which is dictated by uh, an annual, in some cases, an annual appraisal of every property. And as you know, you know, especially lately with, with all the uncertainty about the future of the rate curve, that these real estate values can change very quickly. A year at this point in time is a very long time. The data can get very stale very quickly when it comes to REITs. Well, we want to be able to track not necessarily the performance of the private REITs, but the fundamental allocation. So what do I mean by that? I mean, what geographies are they investing in? What property types are they investing in? What subsectors, what's their allocation? Um, and, and try to understand where, where they're placing their bets, and we can place our bets in the same manner that they are and give you that. So we're tracking what they're doing from a fundamental standpoint, and ultimately we're not sure if that's going to track the performance or not. We think that because of the valuation gap, the 40% valuation gap by our numbers, we think that that 
significantly advantages the future prospects of returns for the public REITs relative to the privates. Phil, let me ask you this. You know, as I was thinking through our conversation, I'm an advisor. Um, I I know a lot of advisors, and and some of those advisors obviously traffic in non-traded REITs. There's a reason why that Blackstone fund is as big as it is. And so, look, you know I'm an ETF champion overall, but if I were to play devil's advocate on these non-traded REIT funds, there's no question the fees on those are typically egregious. I I think we could both uh, agree on that. But let's put the fees aside. Is there any benefit to gating redemptions and, quote, unquote, smoothing returns just from the standpoint that maybe you get better investor behavior? Like perhaps the smooth out returns and not being able to sell when you want. Maybe that helps investors stick with a strategy over the long term because it's easier psychologically. And and so maybe they have a better outcome. Do Do you have any thoughts around that? There is this mirage nowadays. There is this idea out there that the less liquidity you have, the better the investment is. And, you know, anybody could just go buy SPY. Anybody could just go buy a public market stock or an ETF, and it's available to anyone. There's nothing exclusive or, or you know, there's no, there's no gate. There's no guy with a clipboard standing outside telling, you know, who can come in and who can't. Anybody could just buy a public fund. But a private fund that doesn't have liquidity that you need a special invitation for. That's a little more exclusive. And, and I mean, these are like social things that I think have been, you know, people have been a little bit preyed upon by using these tactics to imply that there is an illiquidity premium, not a liquidity premium. You don't pay more for liquidity. You pay more for less liquidity. And it's completely backwards. But it's all done based on this idea that you're getting something exclusive or special or, or not not accessible to the you know, to the common man in the street. You have access, you know, to Blackstone's allocations and nobody else does. And I think it's a bunch of of BS. I really do. And, and, you know, look, there's a certain contingent of, you know, B-REIT investor that is, you know, that that the appeal of the Blackstone brand and the appeal of, you know, what they've been able to pull together and, and, you know, their asset base and, and, you know, all these things are greater than, let's say, the valuation gap. Right. Or let's say, you know, what we can offer them. And that's fine for those investors. They should stay where they where they are. And, and, and honestly, on a long enough time horizon, they're probably going to be OK. in this fund, Right. Eventually, there will be an increase in liquidity. Eventually, rates will come down and there'll be some sort of normalization here in the commercial real estate market. I don't know when, but this should happen one day. But for investors that are more focused on the valuation gap, on liquidity, on the liquidity premium, not the illiquidity premium, but actually being able and for their clients to be able to access liquidity when they need it. You know, for, for, for firms that are willing to take a risk on a, on a smaller issuer, on a newer issuer, on a, on a small fund, they're not concerned about, you know, what is my AUM relative to Blackstone, but they're more concerned about, is this getting me the same, the same investment strategy, but doing it in a smarter way with better liquidity, with lower fees, and at a significant valuation discount, for those investors, we think we have something that, you know, that really makes sense. Phil, just about uh, a minute or two left here. I'm going to switch gears. Armada does also offer the uh, residential REIT ETF, again, ticker house. Do you want to spend just a quick minute or two on that ETF? I'd love to have you just highlight that for listeners as well. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It's a pure play on the residential REIT market, which – you know, if you look at things, I know a lot of people are nervous about REITs, and, and for, for good reason, but there are a lot of things that are highly beneficial in the residential REIT market. When you look at, you know, occupancy and vacancy rates, when you look at migration trends, the supply-demand imbalance, especially now that with higher rates, 
a lot of new construction projects can't get off the ground because financing costs are too high. Um, you know, the, historically, uh, re- uh, or, or real estate, you know, residential real estate has had a high correlation to inflation. Um, there's a lot of reasons to think that, um, you know, that, that these residential REITs have bottomed. They, they've been beaten down by the market in a mark-to-market um, environment. And, uh, and, you know, we are extremely bullish. So it's an actively managed fund that focuses a pure play on the residential REIT market. You get the, um, the dividends that come from uh, the residential REITs. And, again, we're talking mostly about rental income, not so much home prices. So the, uh, the extra mortgage costs from higher rates are, don't affect the residential REITs quite as much as they do home prices, like you, you see, for example, in the Kate Schiller Index or something like that. So it's a pure play on the market, and uh, you know, we're extremely bullish on this fund. Well, Phil, always enjoy our uh, conversations. You're clearly on top of your game with, with this stuff. I love the passion around it. I called you a true ETF entrepreneur at the top of the podcast. Uh, I think listeners can hear that. They can feel that. I wish you the best of luck on everything. Uh, of course, except the uh, Lions game next Thursday, <laughs> which what we'll do, why don't we uh, We'll finalize the bet. We'll put it out on Twitter, which in my mind sort of like the uh, blockchain. It's like once it's out there, it's, uh, it's set in stone. But thank you for joining me. I appreciate you very much. Thank you. That was Phil Bach, CEO of Armada ETFs. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Newberger Berman. If you would like to learn more about Newberger Berman, you can visit nb.com slash ETF. Next week, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing yet following the uh, Labor Day weekend, but uh, word has it the grayscale ruling came out during this podcast recording, so I have a feeling I'll be covering that, but uh, stay tuned. Until then, have a great week, everyone.